0: If you would please turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, Titus chapter 3. You can find it on pages 998 and 999 in the church Bible. Our passage this morning is one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in Scripture, and yet also at the same time one of the most challenging passages in Scripture. It's beautiful because in it Paul, the Apostle, shows us the truths about God's grace to us, His saving work through His Son, Jesus Christ, by which He has made us His own, by which He has saved us from sin, saved us for Himself. And yet it's also a challenging passage because this letter, what, what Paul is talking about here, is meant to call us to a certain way of living, a way of living that brings glory to Him, And that requires us to devote ourselves to good works in our everyday lives. So my hope is that as we spend our time here, that we will see the beauties of God's grace to us, but that we will also be challenged to consider how we are living our lives, both as individuals and as a church body. So would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Titus 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this to Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Titus, we have a problem. The church in Crete is falling apart. There's false teachers who have infiltrated it. They're living lives for their own desires and their own passions. They're causing conflict and controversies in your church, Titus. And not only that, they're upsetting whole families. Many in your churches that you're overseeing are pursuing their own passions and pleasures. They're living disobedient lives, lives that are bringing shame to the gospel that you preach, lives that are not being lived for godliness and good works. Titus, your churches are on fire, and you need to make them healthy again. In the book of Titus, we've been seeing that Paul, the apostle, has been writing to his protege, Titus. Titus had been called by Paul and by God to oversee the churches on the island of Crete. And Titus was facing a lot of challenges. The churches were marked by conflict and controversy, false teaching, and much wrong living. The people in Titus's churches, by and large, were not committing themselves to godliness and good works. And so throughout the letter, we've seen the last two weeks, Paul has been telling Titus, here's what you need to do to get the Cretan house in order. First, I want you to set up godly leaders who will live lives that are above reproach and will guard the church. Second, last week we saw that Titus was to teach what accords with sound doctrine, to teach various groups in the church how they ought to live their lives in order to bring glory to God. And here in Titus 3, Paul ends his letter by telling Titus to teach certain things, to remind the Cretan churches of how they ought to live in public. We see this in verses 1 through 2. He, tells them, he says, I want you to remind them to be submissive to rulers, to be obedient to the government, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He says, Titus, I want you to tell the people in your churches to live godly lives, not rebellious lives, not hostile lives, not lives marked by anger and hatred for others, but lives marked by goodness and godliness. But he doesn't just say, do this because I say so. In verses 3 through 7, we see that he also tells Titus why they ought to pursue these lives of godliness and good works namely they are to pursue these lives because god has saved them so during our time what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the beautiful passages in three through seven of how god has saved us and as we go we'll see how the ways that god has saved us compel us to live the sort of life paul describes in verses one through two then at the end we'll spend a little bit of time looking at what that looks like practically for us. The first thing we see is that God saved us from sin. God saved us from sin. We see this most clearly in verses 3 through 5 and last chapter in chapter 2 verse 14. Paul's just given these instructions. He said here's what I want you to tell the Cretans to pursue. I want them to live these lives of obedience and kindness towards others, gentleness And he says this, he says, For we ourselves once lived differently. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You could also translate hated by others as detestable. Paul says, This is who you were, Titus. This is who I was. This is who all who have come to Christ once were. He says, We once were like this. We once were disobedient. We once were living in hostility toward other people. We once were enslaved to our passions and pleasures. We once were detestable. It's pretty strong words. But something has changed. This is not the current reality. We once were these things, Paul says. But something different has happened. Verse 4 we read, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He says, This is who we once were. We once were enemies of God, enemies of others, enslaved to sin. But God has saved us, and so that's no longer who we are. But how has God saved us? How has this change come about? The first thing is that through the work of Christ, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We have been justified. We see this in verse 7. The word justified refers to the reality that all of us who had lived our lives in rebellion against God, every human being who has ever lived other than Christ, had committed sins against God that were deserving of his judgment, that had brought a death penalty upon us. We were not living as God called us to live. We were living disobedient lives, foolish lives, lives of hostility. But God, in his grace, in his love, in his kindness, saved us. Not because we were beautiful or lovely, not because we had done works in righteousness that earned our salvation, No, God saved us because he was merciful and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we could not live, to live a life of holiness and purity and good works and obedience, a life that qualified him to serve as our substitute. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the penalty and the punishment that we deserved. And so we are no longer under God's wrath and at the same time his righteousness has become our righteousness and we are seen by God as his people. God has shown us great mercy through the work of Christ who has justified us and this reality that God has saved us from the penalty of sin ought to affect how we live our lives with others including those who do not yet know him. Notice that Paul is calling them to live certain lives of peacefulness and gentleness with others and he grounds it in the reality that we used to be like that he says you and I Titus we used to be living a different way we used to be like everyone else and so when we consider the reality that we weren't saved because we were beautiful in reality Paul says we were living detestable lives when we grasp the reality that we were not saved because of works done in righteousness but because of God's mercy when we grasp the reality that we ourselves were no different than those around us, it ought to cause us to be humble. There's no place for us to look down on those outside the family of God and scorn them or treat them harshly or unkindly if we realize that we ourselves were no different. Paul makes clear that we have been saved by God's mercy, not because of our beauty, and so that should cause us to live humbly with those around us. The second reality is that God has saved us not only from the power of sin, but not only from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. Notice the language he uses in verse 3. He says, We once were slaves to the various passions and pleasures of our lives. We've seen this language earlier. In Titus 2, he warns the older women not to be slaves to much wine. In Titus 1, he talks about how the Cretans, especially the false teachers, were bound by these sins. They were lazy gluttons. They were showing themselves to be pursuing these passions and pleasures. The reality is that we all, before Christ came, were bound by our sin. We were enslaved to it. Paul in Romans 5-8 through talks about how all of humanity fell in Adam, and we were all under sin's control, under sin's power. We were not able to free ourselves. We were not able to save ourselves. We were not able to do that which is right and pleasing in God's sight. We were not only under the penalty of sin, we were under the power and control of sin. And yet Paul tells us that Jesus came to save us from that, to free us from sin's power and control. We see this in chapter 2, verse 14, which I think sets the stage for the doctrinal section in chapter 3. There we read that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The word redeem is a word from the slave market of that day. It means to pay the price to free a slave from a master. So what Paul is saying here in 2.14 is that Jesus came not only to pay the penalty for our sin, but he came to pay the price to free us from sin's control and from sin's power. That we no longer have to live the sort of life that Paul describes in verse 3. We are no longer, if we are in Christ, slaves to our passions and pleasures. We are no longer to be foolish or disobedient or led astray. That's who we used to be. That's who we once were. Paul says, but though that is our past, it should not be our present, and it does not need to be our future. Friends, Jesus came to save us from the power of sin, so why would we live as though we still remain under its control? God is calling us to something better than that. He's calling us to a life lived for his glory, not in slavery to sin and to lawlessness, but pursuing that which is pleasing in his sight, and brings him glory in the world. So God saved us from our sins, but he did more than just save us from our sins, save us from the penalty we bore, save us from the power of sin. He also saved us for himself. He saved us from sin, but he also saved us for himself. We see this in verses 5 through 7, and again in chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 214, we read that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, so to free us from sin's power, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus came to make us his own, to purify a special people who would belong to him, the language Paul is drawing on here is language from the Old Testament, from Exodus, where God talked about how he was saving his people Israel, not because they were a great nation, not because they were all that, but to be his precious people, his crown jewel, if you will, who would represent him before a watching world, a people who would bring him glory in the sight of the nations by the way that they lived. And Paul makes clear that the way that this people for his own possession was won by Jesus, was through purification. God wants a holy people who will represent him well in the world. I believe this purifying that Paul talks about in chapter 2.14 is the same thing that he's talking about in chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. There we read about how Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly and it resulted in our the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit talks about purification in 2.14. Here he talks about washing. And again here, Paul is drawing on the language of the Old Testament. This language of washing of new life, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit is language from Ezekiel 36 and 37. I'm not going to read that for you now, but... In that vision that Ezekiel has, God was addressing a problem very similar to the problems Titus was facing. You see, God had chosen his people to be his precious possession, to represent him well in the world, to bring him glory. But God's people in Ezekiel's day were not doing that. They were not living in ways that brought honor to God's name. Instead, they were disobeying God. They were acting shamefully. And they were bringing slander against God's name through the way that they lived. Similar thing is happening in the Cretan churches. Why is Paul writing to Titus? Because the Cretan churches are a mess. The people in the churches are pursuing their own passions and pleasures. They're living as though they were still under the control of sin. They're not living obedient lives. They're not submitting to those in authority over them. They're not living godly lives in their relationships with the outside world or with one another. And through that work, they're bringing shame and disrepute to the God they claim to serve. They're bringing attacks against the faith that Titus and Paul are preaching. And so it's this very similar situation where they're not living the way they're supposed to live. They're not maintaining the good reputation they're supposed to maintain for the glory of God. You see, friends, God saved us not just so we would be free of sin. He saved us for his own glory, to be his special people who would bring honor to his name. I think that's one of the reasons why in Titus, in verses 1 through 2, but really throughout the book, there's such an emphasis on maintaining a good reputation in the eyes of the outside world let so read verses 1. It's be submissive to governing authorities. You're to live as good citizens, if you will, so that it will bring glory to God and the community in which you live. You're to live peaceably with those around you. You're not to be speaking evil of other people. You're not to be quarreling. You're to be gentle, and you're to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The emphasis is on maintaining a good reputation, not for your own sake, but for the glory of God. And we see something really similar in the other chapters. In Titus 1, one of the main qualifications for leaders in the church, they must be above reproach. When people look at their lives, there shouldn't be anything that they can say, look, that's shameful, or I can't believe they do that. In Titus 2, in the instructions to the various people in the church, there's again this emphasis on our lives being beautiful for God's glory. In the instructions to the young women, he grounds them. He says, the reason I want you to live this way is so that the word of God may not be reviled. So when people look at your lives, there's nothing for them to criticize. Similarly, he tells Titus to be a model of good works. And at the end, in his instructions to slaves, he tells them that they are to live in certain ways to that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, that through their lives, It might bring beauty and honor to both what is being taught and the God who is being taught about. And so friends, as we consider our lives in the world, as we consider our salvation, we need to realize God has saved us for himself and we represent him. And so the way that we live live our lives needs to be glorifying rather than bringing shame. So God has saved us from our sin. He has saved us for himself to represent him in the world the last thing i want us to see in this section is that he has saved us for good works he has saved us for good works in titus two fourteen, we read that jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works that is, God, when He was saving us, was not just saving us to do whatever we want, to be whoever we want. Rather, He was saving us to be the sorts of people who are zealous, who are devoted to, who are committed to doing good works. In fact, that's the reason Titus is to teach both the doctrinal content of verses 3 through 7 and the verses 1 through 2. Verse 8 we read, This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Part of the reason why Jesus came to save you was so that you would do good works, that you would commit yourself to living in ways that bring God glory and do good to others. That is one of our primary callings as Christians. Christianity is a religion of good works. Not good works as the grounds of our justification. Paul's clear about that in verse 5. He says, God didn't save us because of works we did in righteousness, but it is our calling. We aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. This is our job. This is what we are to pursue in our lives. Now, this has a number of implications for us. First, we are to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. We're to be zealous for it. It's to be our focus. That's the reason Titus is to teach these things, because they're profitable and worthwhile. They lead people to do good works. But he also warns Titus, he says, I want you to stay focused, and I don't want you to get distracted by other things that don't lead to good works. In verses 9 through 11, he says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He says, The teaching I want you to teach is intended for the people to do good works, and it's profitable. It leads to that. But I don't want you to spend your time getting caught up in fights and arguments about things that don't lead to good works. We live in a church where... I think a lot of us pride ourselves on being pretty knowledgeable about the Bible. Many of us keep up to speed on the latest discussions and theological controversies. And it's good and right to care about what God's Word says, to be careful about how we live and what we believe. But there are also discussions, especially esoteric discussions, sort of abstract discussions that don't lead us to good works. And think of like the famous medieval example of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I don't know how that helps you pursue good works. And that was one of the criticisms that the reformers said. They said you've got all of this theology that you're focusing on that's really abstract and it's not profitable. It's not leading to good works. We should avoid any controversies, especially within our church, that are just fighting for fighting's sake that don't lead to to profitable good works in our lives. So guard against that sort of thing. And Titus also, Paul also makes clear guard against those who stir up those sorts of things. So we are to stay focused on living lives marked by good works. That's part of why Jesus saved us. But what does that really look like in everyday life? It's good to talk about it in the abstract, but When we really get down to brass tacks, what does that have to do with you and I 2,000 years later in Wichita, Kansas? What does it look like to live a life of good works? Well, I think we've seen some of it earlier in Titus. I'm not going to rehash all of it, but the sort of life called for in the lives of elders, being faithful to one's family, being hospitable. In Titus 2, we saw all kinds of instructions to specific groups in the church. But in Titus 3, 1 through 2, I think we see other examples of what this looks like in public. First, verse 1, we are to be living lives of submission to rulers and authorities. Here, Paul is talking about governing authorities, governments. And he says, What I want you to do is I want you to tell the Cretans to live submissive lives. The default expectation throughout the New Testament is that Christians live lives of obedience to the governments that are over them in the particular place and time that they live. This isn't just in Titus. You see it in Timothy. You see it in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. You see it in Peter's letter in 1 Peter, that there is this expectation that we as believers would submit to governing authorities over us. That includes governing authorities we like. It includes governing authorities we don't like. It includes governing authorities that we agree with and those we don't agree with. It even includes decisions the government might make that we think are unwise or unnecessary or unhelpful. This isn't an unqualified call. There are exceptions. For example, we shouldn't obey a government that tells us to do something that God says is sin. In Exodus 1, we see Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives to kill the firstborn babies and they disobey and God blesses them for it. This also doesn't mean that we should stop doing something God tells us to do just because the government tells us to stop. In Acts we see an example of the apostles are told to stop preaching Christ and they say we must obey God rather than men. So there are cases where we don't where we shouldn't obey the governing authorities, but those are the exceptions. They're not the rule. The default expectation is that Christians obey the governments in place over them. So there are some practical implications for us. It's tax season, right? One of the ways that we submit to our governing authorities is paying those taxes that we owe to the government. You should be careful that you are doing right in that regard. And you certainly shouldn't be trying to evade paying taxes that you owe. Or another example, when you're driving on K96 or I-135, what does your speedometer say about your submission to governing authorities? There, there are all kinds of ways in which this plays out in our life. And we should be careful to live good lives of good works for the glory of God. Not only are we to be obedient to the rulers and authorities, though we're also to be ready for every good work. See that in verse 1? This is an area where I think our church excels. What Paul's talking about here is that Christians should be the first ones to volunteer their time and their resources and their efforts for the good of others in their broader community. I think of the many examples of people in our church stepping up after natural disasters. The tornado that ripped through Andover in 1991. I wasn't alive then, but I know many of you were some of the first to be there, right? so i'm told or or the tornadoes that ripped through joplin missouri a few years ago or the floods in nebraska a couple of years ago or hurricane harvey many of you were some of the first to step up you were eager to do the sorts of good works that would bring glory to god but would also bring good to others or another example many of you are emergency foster parents or long-term foster parents, your giving of your time and your resources and your your lives to care for those in need in our community. These are the sorts of good works that Jesus saved you to do, so continue in them and pursue them. We should have a reputation for being eager do-gooders in the best sense of the phrase. The last thing we should see in verse 2 is that we are to live peaceful lives with others. Paul's pretty clear about what this looks like. We're to speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. That includes people you don't like, that you can't stand. That includes people who mistreat you. That includes public officials you don't like. That includes everyone. Speak evil of no one. You see, the way that we speak about others reflects our own heart. And it can either bring glory to God or it can bring shame to the name of Christ. So consider how you speak of others in private, in public, on social media, wherever it might be. We are called to live peaceable lives. In the same way, avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's all people. People you agree with, the people you don't, that customer service rep who won't give you a straight answer everyone we're to live faithful godly lives of peace with those around us in our community this is the sort of life paul is calling us to in public and it also applies to our relationships in private we see at the end when paul gives final instructions in verses 12 through 14 he says i want you to uh, send zenos the lawyer and apollos on their way these were other church leaders, see that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We are called to pursue good works for God's glory, but also for the good of others and especially the good of fellow believers. We should make sure that those who are in need lack nothing, that we're helping those who are in need, especially in our community of believers. God has shown us great grace in Christ. We were once dead in sin, under its power, under the penalty. And yet God, in his grace and kindness, in his goodness and mercy, saved us. And that beautiful reality should challenge us to live godly lives. So as you consider God saving you from sin, his saving you for himself, his saving you for good works, pursue them. Be careful to devote yourselves to godly lives that bring him glory and do good to others. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your loving kindness, for your goodness and mercy and grace to us. We thank you that Jesus Christ, our Savior, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify us, for you as a people belonging to you who are zealous for good works. Would you use these truths to propel us out in the lives that bring you honor in the world? Would our lives look like what you're calling for here in this passage? And would you be glorified by the way we live together and in the world all the rest of our days? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.